Okay, we're live. Welcome to the Lance Cleaver Experience. Um, as, as I was saying before, um, I hope everyone has their five-hour energy drink on hand because I'm informed by Lance that he only does um, five-hour conversations. <laughs> so you're going to need that and you're going to need something stronger um, for when we go into overtime. But um, uh, Lance just... Uh, uh, you know, we were saying just before the recording started that we don't per se have an agenda. I know that you and I have both kind of changed a lot in the last year and a half and actually maybe even have been changing a lot just in the last like few months. Um, so there's definitely a lot to talk about. Um, but I know that that for you, some of the big changes that, that you've actually you've discussed on another podcast or a channel type place. Um, and, and you talked about your journey into orthodoxy, um, I believe, and I know that that journey has kind of deepened, so I think we want to talk about that. Um, also, kind of like the critical role that belief in uh, universal salvation has come to play in your, your thinking and your theology and your sort of relationship with God. Obviously, I have a lot of thoughts about that as well. And I think we, you know, just, just in terms of like you and your journey, just like as a starting point or an entry point into these, into these issues and, and um, kind of like, you know, experiential changes and, you know, learning and growth. I think that, that uh, would be a, you know, a, a good way to like have this conversation. Yeah. And I think we've got, um, we have, uh, you've had an interesting road here too. Right. So as we kind of I got questions for you and we can figure some things out. And, and also, I, lo I love the way you think. And so I want I want to read something. I'm going to read Jess, our good friend, Jess P. The Beauty of Ethics. There's this portion in here, this book that um, kind of talks about maybe Adam and Eve seeing Christ crucified in the garden. And I love just because I know you've got interesting way to think about things and what that says about time and how that emanates out. So I think we can have an interesting conversation. And um you know, so yeah, so I had, I did a podcast with Job, and uh, so, you know, when I first entered this little corner of the internet, I basically came on uh, December of a year ago, and so I'd had an opportunity to talk with Job, and that really was kind of a little bit, kind of catching people up at like 40,000 feet on kind of Lance's life and what I was about. And then kind of, you know, at the end, I, I, or actually, as I started off that conversation, I joked with him, that was after I'd gone to my second divine liturgy, which was January of last year. And it was, you know, it was pretty wild. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, what, what I would say, like a fundamental thing about me uh, that, you know, actually my mentors or people would have talked about me is that uh, I'm very coachable. I always have been. Like I'm very open. Now I'm Pat. People who know me, I'm a passionate guy, <laughs> and when I believe things, I believe things passionately. But I'm also willing to leave kind of all of my old ideas on the doorstep. When I'm presented presented with something new or a better way of doing things, or you know, at the end of the day, um, particularly over the last 25 to 30 years, my pursuit has just been a pursuit towards Jesus. And, and what does that look like? Right. And what is the path? <laughs> you know, and, and, and more specifically, not about knowing things about him. But knowing him, you know, um, experiencing him, because I'm very much uh, a practicer and a doer. 
And so, you know, in recovery communities, they talk about that you have to be willing to let go of all of your old ideas. And I think that's a big struggle for people. And I and and I think it's generally a struggle for people. I think that people build up propositional beliefs, ideas, they get entrenched, they have biases. Uh, by the way, we all have biases. I have biases. You have biases. We have biases. But some some people get further entrenched in those bias, those biases. But I think we're at a particularly acute time. And I know because I can feel it like I've been feeling under attack for the past few years. You know, I don't know if, if you felt that, Cal, that it seems like something's tearing apart. And when you do that, and particularly if you're a person uh, of faith and, you know, we've been the onslaught of materialism, scientism has been going on for hundreds of years, but it really appears as if there's a, a fulcrum, there's a fulcrum, there's a point that's coming together right now on us. And so people are lat just honing in, you know, circling the wagons and very much would be unwilling to maybe open themselves up to new ideas or new thinking. And so, you know, I've, I, I started the journey, I was I just kind of to give you just kind of the faith journey to get into where I'm at right now. And I want to say this because, you know, when I'm on Bridges of Meaning, I think people people are identifying me as orthodox, which I absolutely have embraced orthodox thinking and thrown myself fully into the way of life. We prayed some orthodox prayers before we started up here. It's become part of my daily life. But I'm 52. The first 51 years of my life I spent in Western waters. <laughs> And I very much was, you know, by the way, I very much I am a cultural American Midwest kid. And I have absolutely been, you know, very much of a part of that 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 ethos. Right. And so I was uh, confirmed in the Methodist Church, loved it, got a lot of uh, the love of God and the call to personal holiness didn't get that fire and brimstone hell talk that you would get in certain, you know, certain places or in certain genres. Um, and then I saw that kind of to start breaking apart in the early 2000s. The Methodist church that I was going to in Kansas City became, and it kind of vacillates between the largest mega Methodist church in the country. And it just it just didn't feel right. And then they were starting to make some decisions to be there. Quite frankly, it was a Range Rover church, if you know what I mean by that. <laughs> and I. Go, go ahead, actually. I'm sorry. Break that down for me a little bit more. The rich crowd that wants to be right, the, the prosperity wants to be okay to live their life, have their multiple homes, do their things, a little Jesus on Sunday, and, you know, the the uh, the, the grace the, the grace uh, versions and verses, and then kind of want to be able to do what they want, to be honest with you. Um, and I know that that's a caricature, but, but uh, you know, that's, it's called nominal Christians. Right. It's kind of the term that Barna would talk about. And we've been tracking throughout here and it just didn't feel right. Then I so then I was doing a Willow Creek model, uh, a, a smaller mega church, but the rock band and all that stuff. Very Willow Creek modeled um, and, and 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 loved that. But then as part of that movement, the, the lead pastor had left because what he was seeing was um and, and this was in the mid 2000s, was that it wasn't producing disciples. You put on a great rock show and people will show up. And if you have a dynamic teacher, people will stay. But in terms of actually moving the crowd, most of the people into an actual 
change, transformation, way of life that you aren't just doing it a couple days a week or coming to the programs or the services. It wasn't producing the effect. And like, so he showed me all, like we, we broke down the budgets of big churches and how much was spent on this, that, and the other versus how many true disciples were created, you know? So um, he went out and we started in Acts 242, a house church planning movement. So I went to seminary with, with, with 12 guys and we were all planning house churches, co-pastoring with each other. And so I left a legal career to go do this because when I, when he says, leave your net and come follow me, I took that literally and did it. And so left an executive legal career to go out and to try and figure out how can I live out this calling and journey. And, And there was a road to Damascus, Holy Spirit moment, pinned down 25 minutes in my house in Prairie Village, Kansas, uh, with my now deceased wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, a friend was involved. So it was confirmation. Other people were there. It was wild, Cal. I mean, it was wild. Um, And so that was what really sent me on this journey to drop my net and come into this calling and and also trying to figure out what to do with that. So I did. So I've done that. So I I certainly have friends who were in megachurch movements and had lots of friends in other areas, but I wouldn't take my family to that because I was trying to model for them something true, something authentic, something that was closer to the early church. Um, and um, and then ultimately, you know, recovery is a part of my story. And um, I found myself here into the bridges of meaning and I had been searching uh, for something that would work for me, Cal, right? Something that would, that would, that would, um, Give me a design for living and a way of life to to really help my 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 Christian walk play out on something that I could truly live and count on on a daily basis that would truly transform me and would that would last that was truly authentic that wasn't part of what I saw was um, you know 60 million people have lost left the church since the year 2000. PVK is talking about on his Q&A, if you don't have an awesome rock, if you don't have an awesome worship service, people aren't coming to your church, right? Um, if you look at models of butts in the seats, supposedly he's a he's a failed pastor. He's not. He's loving and caring for you. See what I'm saying? And so um, I, I never I never imagined that a Midwest charismatic Holy Spirit leave his job house church pastor is going to find his way into the Orthodox church. That's insane. But I had started uh, after having a conversation with Sherry uh, and Luke, and she just asked me one question and was kind of centered around penal substitutionary atonement. But I had this sense, like, this is a woman I need to listen to. There was something like, I, I, I just had this sense, and I, I've told her this, and I mean, sometimes you recognize the father's voice. I recognize there's this is she said something. So I started studying and kind of opening myself. And, you know, in my seminary and and most of Western Protestantism, we start from the Reformation on. (laughs) You don't even get any ever really any access. And Catholics are bad. So Catholics are bad. (laughs) And I even went to a Catholic college, by the way. Catholics are bad. And uh, and, you know, so we had to fix all this stuff and we only do that. But so I was I was opened up to this to these patristics and I had never been really exposed to orthodoxy in any way. So I I went on a deep dive and then literally I'm a guy that said, I want to go see if this works. 
So I went down to the nearest Orthodox church in me, went to a divine liturgy. And when I was in that divine liturgy, I realized I was home. That's the term that just for me, I realized I was home. And I recognized the deep scriptural connection, right? Because I'm a guy who's lived in this Bible. So I recognize this deep scriptural connection and the, the reverence and the awe and the holiness of what I was watching. And I was like, I was just stunned by it. And, and I immediately realized I needed to, to, to check this out. So then I last year just dove into going to basically all the services, midweek services, all of Lent. I probably missed a couple services. And then I was doing the daily prayers and I was following the daily lectionaries and I was doing, doing the fasting and, and just trying to see, does this work? And what I found out was it does. It worked. It gave me a real deep, repeatable connection that I had always been seeking because I am not a naturally disciplined person. And and I hate rules, too, by the way. If you have a rule, I'll break it. But and, and people think there's a lot. There aren't a lot of rules. There's not a lot of dictates, but there are these frameworks that, that, that are given to you. And I talk about the prayers are like scales. And so now you know, there might be a little weird at first, but once you learn them, now you can now you can go off and play music. And I think you probably saw I have some things in my heart now with Orthodox prayers. And that's what my prayer morning looks like. You know, longer, more extended. And I'm no longer searching for extemporaneous prayers because sometimes you're in a pit and you don't have the words to pray. You know, so I have these prayers that I can get on and they they, they just get me recentered into God and to do all these things. So that was kind of a long lead in to kind of talk about where I was at. And so I would say that when I left the church, the Methodist church in 2001, I'd been a wanderer. I was wandering. I was searching. I was seeking. I was looking for the real way that you know what I mean? Because that's all I, that's all I care about. And I you and one second. Sorry to be yep. a parody of myself. I have to go get my hat. Keep going. There we go. And so, uh, by the way, yes, we need to get the hat on. And so th- that's what leads me here today. So so where I'm at right now, I'm a catechumen. My, and, and I don't know, my wife is opening up uh, a bit. I have, I have no idea whether she may or may not be interested in joining the Orthodox Church. Um, and so, you know, I've slowed myself down and um, to basically wait to see what that looks like for her. So I'm in no rush to join or become a, a, a member uh, that'll be something that will happen between, you know, a conversation between my wife and I. Um, if if she were to join, it doesn't have to be this way, but I think it'd be pretty cool if we were chrismated together. That'd be pretty awesome, you know. And so I don't really know where that's going to gonna be at. So um, to come in and stick the landing here, I talked about having a willingness to be open and 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 kind of be willing to discard all of my old ideas. I knew one thing. I know one thing, and my boys have heard me say this. I know one thing to be true. Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And in the same way that Paul on the road to Damascus thought he knew certain things, for example, Deuteronomy says the man hung on a tree is cursed. So by, he could have gone to his Bible verse and said, oh, wait a minute. See, I see it. He, no way he can be the Messiah. He ends up encountering and being confronting the person of Jesus. And so he really had to unlearn, rethink, see everything in a whole new way, which he obviously did. And so um, I'm a person who's, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm actually a person that is willing to do those sorts of things. And, and I know that at that is that and I'm unafraid to have all any propositions, dogmas, tribes, groups, all that stuff can float away from me. Because because I know Jesus is true. He's real. He's a person. Because I've met him. And so whatever this other stuff is, it doesn't matter. You know, the truth is truth. The way is the way. And so um, I really am a person who's let, really let, willing to let all those things go on. That's how a charismatic guy like me can end up in orthodoxy, you know, end up in orthodoxy. And by the way, that means I'm leaving the opportunity to be a house church planner and pastor and teacher. I'm like, like, so I left a legal career and then now I'm even willing to leave that, that this other thing behind. See, it doesn't matter. I will, if once confronted with a reality, I, it just, you have to be willing to just let everything go. And so, um, but I know for certain people, some of the things that we would talk about today, like the beautiful ideas around apocatastasis and, you know, thinking about, God's mercy. And, you know, with, we can get into George McDonald where his justice is, justice is mercy and his mercy is justice, right? And this whole idea that God really can be love, love period. Like God can just be, God is love. And he doesn't have to be God is love, love and angry <laughs> and vengeful, you know, no, God's love. And so, but I know that's hard for people, but is, is in light of the things that are happening and the attacks that people are under and they feel like the attack that their faith is under, I understand that this is a really difficult time for people to be willing to put their cards on the table. I would want to call people out to say, don't be afraid. Jesus is real. You know, no matter what you might hold on to or believe, and that, that would include folks within an orthodox framework. I'm not saying orthodoxy is perfect, but you but this whole idea of being an open person to be willing to allow um to be willing to be to allow Jesus to reveal who he is to you and to figure out how to live in that and be transformed in it. Let me let me just speak to this a little bit because the way you, you talked about it, it's like there is a tension between you said you said Jesus is real, don't be afraid to put your beliefs aside. It's like, well, those are two different things. Well, so so the way that I'm what I'm getting from you is first of all, we have this question of whether the truth the word of God is like a static set of rules or if it's a person. And if it's a person, what does that say about it? Because, you know, our friend Nate has been saying something lately that's that's been, you know, engaging my imagination a lot, where he, he's been repeating that, that there's something about the structure of the person or of personhood, which is infinite and inexhaustible and cannot be exhaustively defined. Like of a person, you cannot say, this person is, in the final analysis, just this and this and this, and therefore he's justly condemned to hell. It's like this person is in the image of God. There's always potentially something more that is not manifest. You cannot reduce him to some final judgment, really. Um, uh, and so Jesus, Jesus is the living word. He cannot actually be encapsulated 
in some static description. To know him as opposed to merely knowing things about him is actually to enter into an ever-deepening mystery, right? As it's always, you know, farther up, farther in, as, as we say. And and so it is it is a journey, and it is also something which which continually open your mind opens your mind to different understandings of God. Because you know, originally, you know, like if you watch The Chosen, uh, <laughs> Nicodemus uh, is is saying, well, why do why does God have to be in the box where he can't actually come down in human form? And that's spoken as someone who is he's 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 relating he's 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 relating to God personally and not merely trying to enclose him within you know some some static understanding even if he himself is you know uh uh, uh in the end he's too um attached to his possessions and to his comfortable lifestyle and uh and the prestige or you know kavod maybe you would say that that attaches to being a a a, a, you know, a, fair, a Pharisaic rabbi, but you know, I always remember that scene, and that's that's part of what's been uh, in my mind um, as as you were talking. There's something else, which was you're saying about you know your recent interest in orthodoxy, and um, you know the way you talk about it certainly makes me interested too. And uh, there's there are a fair number of universalists within the the Orthodox Church. Um, and some would say that's not actually compatible with like, uh, you know, the traditional orthodox teaching, which does emphasize an eternal hell. And, and what, what's been on my mind recently about that is how on one level, I feel increasingly like that I can just easily affirm that hell is eternal. But 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 the thing is, what are we saying there? Are we speaking to the quality of the punishment or are we assuming like this? Are, are we importing? our exact sense of time and you know in this in this temporal and material reality in just some one-to-one -one way and just like saying okay hell is just exactly like this experience of time but just indefinitely long um or you know does hell have a different kind of time i think wherever consciousness is there's like a time-like dynamic but to me the, the, the much more sensible understanding of you know eternal hell is is to, to believe that you know not that the word ionios or aeonios necessarily means eternal but um because it just means of the age but sometimes it can mean you know like what what we would think of as eternal it means of god as opposed to of uh you know that's just like the cosmos um and uh so, but you know, you know, any pain that's significantly, you know, any any pain that's painful enough always is going to feel like it's eternal, like it doesn't end, even if it's just for a few moments. And I think that you know, eternal is probably more sensibly understood as relating to the quality of that thing, but still in a mysterious way, almost allowing for the the, the possibility of um you know a final cleansing or purgation, and that you know that the heaven and the hell that you experience and uh, uh, you know, at the end of this uh, earthly life, is in some sense really the same thing. It's just the love of God, which you know, to one who has built his house on sand, it's it's gonna it's going to destroy that house, but you know, only so that something solid can be built instead. You know, and and to, to the one who has built his house on something firmer, you know, it's going to be experienced as love, uh, you know, more directly. But you know, I mean, obviously, 
people can push back against this. Um, but you know, those were some things that that I was thinking about as you were as you were um, uh, uh, describing orthodoxy. Um, I'm, I also think yeah. that one of the things one of the things I want to point just want to point out here, which is so in Dave, our good friend Dave Williams pointed this out. So in orthodoxy, we have the, the creed plus, plus the mysteries, right? It's really what is how he would describe it as a Nicene, Constantinople, I can't say that right ever, creed. But the only thing that's really stated is that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. It does, there, there, there is no defined position on it it isn't so are there is there absolutely um anytime you start talking about apocatastasis the ultimate reconciliation of all things or the possibility of the ultimate reconciliation of all things while noting as as bishop Callisto Ware, who's a modern day bishop okay so he's not excommunicated who in his article talked about, dare we hope that all shall be saved, because of human freedom, because of human freedom, he gives himself, you know, that, I'll just say the wiggle room to not say an absolute person that would say, because of human freedom, and God gives us this freedom, that you can't, yeah, I believe that's, that too, by the way. and God's not going to coerce to just yeah. infinitely choose away from God. But just like I have the freedom to swerve off the road when I drive, but I, I just choose not to exercise it because when you know who God is without illusion, you always choose God. Right. But anyway, go on. And so so I would just say that, that uh, but but is the, so, but by the way, when you start treading into apocatastasis, the idea of an ultimate reconciliation of all things, um, I don't care if it's orthodoxy, uh, Catholicism, or particularly, uh, Protestant, you know, with Western Protestantism, particularly there, although there are there are uh, Christian Universalists and Apocatastasis people across every everywhere there, there. There are in every denomination, pretty much they're they're everywhere. And they've been they've been around for a long time um, is. Uh, to, to come back to. So I would just I just want I just would like to say that. I wanted to kind of put a fine point on that. And then the second thing, your person's things, like Luke talks about, it is like persons all the way down. And I, I think I think we aren't, we don't believe in an idea. We believe in a person. Like that is so important because with how Paul talks about Verizon, Lisa, and the universe, which we even, if you look at Nathan Jacobs with the young, the, the, the with the nuns and whatever, I think it's really important to understand there are a lot of folks who know a lot of things about God and are searching, talking about thinking and have all these these dogma systems and everything else. There's a lot of stuff that's like knowing about. They know a lot of stuff about the Bible. And the idea is that we are connecting with a, a person, a resurrected living person who condescended, came down, suffered. Um, and, and, and also our persons. Let us make, not let there speak, you know, when we talk about creation, you know, he spoke and created and it's good. And then it comes to the human being and it's let us make them in, in the icon, it's icon, in the image. We have the image. So in our persons, Kale, we have within us 
Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. So this sense of getting away from ideas and propositions and and dog, and, I, and I would say this within orthodoxy too, right? Like all of it, like and I think orthodoxy does a good way of doing this. And I think charismatic there are, there there are groups within within every denomination or spectrum. There are people who get this. By the way, there are absolutely people who get this, Cal. I'm not saying this is it. And that's why I love, which is I think the call is for all of us, regardless of this, is is living into the person of Christ, seeing our personal image and connection and reality with with that. And how do we how do we live in, transform, connect right into that? And so I think the idea of a person becomes prevalent. And when we start talking about persons, then when you have the three concepts of whether it's apocatastasis, whether it's annihilationism, or whether it be eternal conscious torment, once once personhood starts to come to the fore, I don't know about for you, Cal, all of a sudden it starts putting some challenges into some of the biases that I certainly had. Like I wouldn't even have put apocatastasis on the table two years ago, Cal. I would have said no by voice, you know, I, I it just was it was something that I wasn't even to faithfully and honestly consider. Because that's not the people I lived with. That's not what I was told. That's not what I grew up. That's not what Billy Graham told me on NBC in the 70s when I was watching the crusade on a Friday night and Johnny Cash was playing. By the way, those were awesome. <laughs> but um, but as we've seen through here. And so for me, what I've tried to to, to where I'm at with my friends and my personal relationships, because I get like people on the internet or even folks who might, that I might be talking to on Bridges of Meaning or whatever, I'm not going to really have any effect uh, more than likely with anyone. But the people that I'm in personal relationship with, what I'm, what I'm trying, what what I've always tried to do when I get excited about something, I want to share it, whether it's a new band or whatever, like I'm bringing out little nuggets to people and the nuggets I'm bringing out are things like the Jesus prayer and some of these prayer rules that I think are transformative and can help you live, live the daily life. And what I would hope to be able to do to people is without coming with the bias and the arguments and the, I know, and I'm in a camp or whatever, Hey, put, put this on the table. <laughs> do a real, like do an honest exegesis and understand there are certain biases or whatever, and at least put I put the idea of the ultimate idea that God's plan just very well, well might be the ultimate reconciliation of all. It doesn't mean there's not going to be a judgment. There's absolutely going to be a judgment. Or is it annihilationism? Or is it eternal conscious torment? And then what does that mean? But when you put it in the, in the, in the context of the personhood of Christ, who really tells us and most discloses who God really is, and then in our own persons, I think when you start living into that, Cal, that starts, at least for me, really put some struggles into me and 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 showed some ugliness in me i'll be honest to me just me personally i started being confronting with the ugliness that i was i was just fine that some people were going to hell forever didn't bother me a bit and i really confronted that last year and it was i i found it to be an ugliness in me yeah because as as we know Jesus, who, you know, the, you know, the whole, you know, one of the big points of the New Testament, obviously, is that no man has seen God at any time. No one, no one down here has actually any true conception of who God is. The only time we saw it was in the person of Jesus. And we have to look not only at, not only at his words, but I'm not denying any of his words, but I'm saying not only at his words, but also at what he does. 
um, because on the one hand, it's kind of like Jesus, the rabbi, the sense we get from him, he's making it seem harder to get into heaven than any other rabbi gives, gives his audience to understand. But at the same time, in his actions, what he does is he dies in order to make it easier um, you know, than it's ever been, uh, or, you know, than it's ever been understood to be. Uh, Lance, I'm sorry, your uh, camera's Yeah, I'll come on. back. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, no problem. Um, and um, so, you know, and, and Jesus, of course, before he is crucified, he doesn't say, Father, damn them, because they heard your perfect message, you know, and they had every occasion to receive it and believe it, but they didn't. Therefore, we know that they are not of the elect, you know, and, and it is your justice to damn them. He says, just forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Well, suddenly, as if as if knowledge of whether you, what you're doing is right or wrong is actually relevant to the assessment of moral guilt, because normally it's like, no, it's like, it doesn't matter. The law is the law, whatever. Uh, you know, ignorance is no excuse. That's God's justice. That doesn't seem to be the justice of God as, as, as revealed by the actions and words of Jesus. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't I know. There was there was there was something else I thought I was going to say. Um, but if you have any other points to that. Um, no, we're just we're just jiving in. It. We're just kind of we're getting together in conversation, and so I these were cognitive dissonances. So you know, when I was dealing with folks in my life, um, and I dealt with quite a few people who were, um, you know, searching for God, trying to find their way there, then they would ask me questions about, you know, well. And they would say something very simple. You say you're God's love, but if a really kind, loving, nice person who has sacrificed in their life and has and has um, you know sacrificed for kids in their community, um, has suffered, they were poor, all these other sorts of things, but if they don't confess the name of Jesus, you mean they're gonna you know burn in hell forever? That's a tough question, Cal. That's an honest question. I ran into that kind of stuff a lot dealing with people. And they're like, if that's God, I, 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 that's not a God I want to, that's not a God I want to worship. That's not love. Yeah. And it shows the difficulty that, that, that arises when we get too sort of rationalistic and explicit and propositional and, and, and you know, for lack of an, a, a better word, Augustinian about things. Um, you know, because because again, sort of what I was saying, like we talk about the eternality of punishment. One way to interpret the eternality um, is more, say, imaginative um, and kind of qualitative. Another way is just to say, no, let's import our understanding of time, you know, in this in this realm, this life, this experience, in just a one-to-one -one way, and just imagine that it was now like truly endless and indefinite. It seems a little simplistic. And it, it, you know, to say that, or, you know, it's not that scripture doesn't give you good grounds for supposing something like that, because, because, um, you know, leaving Matthew 25 aside for the time being, you've got Revelation, which is like a whole book um, that seems to envision some kind of, you know, final division between saved, you know, and, uh, and damned, and also to envision a book of life in, in, in which people's names are either written or not. Um, and, 
the, the, the only thing there is like revelation only like necessarily indicate, I mean, of course, the Orthodox Church doesn't even necessarily attach the same level of importance to the book of Revelation as do we, us, um, uh, as do we, uh, you know, sola scriptura Protestant type people or Protestant influenced people. And of course, even even the big Protestant thought leaders like Calvin and, and Luther didn't attach much importance to that book. Luther said he considered it neither prophetic nor apostolic actually but you know now that we have the book and we've kind of you know made made a, a, a very big deal about the exact books that it currently has we, we take the book of revelation seriously now and i don't act i don't even think that's wrong i think revelation should be taken seriously um, um but but uh you know it's like is it really describing like this this final division between uh, you know saved and and sinners that just kind of unfolds in this, you know, temporally linear way that we're used to in, you know, in this world of, you know, time and space and physics, or, you know, is it, is it describing, you know, I, I think, I think the, the more sort of poetic or symbolic your interpretations of revelation, the better, because it's clearly not meant to be taken literally. And there's something weird about just taking parts of it literally, but, you know, perforce accepting that others are symbolic but you know one way to look at it is like there's there is the there's the new jerusalem whose gates are never shut significantly and then there's the lake of fire you know and, and this is in some sense it, you can look at it as as like it's the same condition you know it's it's it it is it is god's love experienced um differently but as to whether you know, anyone can can change their mind. Um, I mean, it, it's it's not clearly indicated one way or another. Um, but but you know, the gates are never shut. To me, it's not really saying this is just what's going to happen in time, forever and ever. You know, after after the second death. Yeah, um, and and I think the important thing as we think about this here is this idea, and you were actually talking about with someone this in the voice channel um, last night. Um, which is the whole idea around, you know, we grew up in this very Western sense. I'm a lawyer for freaking, <laughs> I'm a lawyer, right? This Western sense of law and order and justice and everything else. And that permeates our, our, um, our Christian thought, you know, in terms of that. And it's the idea of whether, and, and also put this in the context. And I, I'm an, compared to the father, I'm an awful father, but you yeah. know, I've known when I've punished. Sorry, now I want to just only say I have to jump in now because I said I said yeah, and that can't be the only thing I said. I was thinking of what Jesus said, and and it's like if your son asks you for for bread, you won't give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, you won't give him a scorpion. And you are evil. And he right. means in comparison to the Father's goodness, yeah, you're evil. Yeah, it compares to that infinite Creator who is who is who is who is creating this agopic love or whatever. You know, you have that. But so when when I when I when I when I uh, try to correct my kids when I'm when I am putting in through some sort of punishment, it's not really punishment. What I'm trying to do is corrective teaching, so they can learn something and and not do that again. And there have been some times, Cal, that I'll be honest, that what I did was just to punish them. That is my sinful self, right? And and it also you knew you knew that like as a as a parent would you because we all reach our ends and we're exhausted and 
you know, you're trying to, you know, I was a single dad with a two-year-old uh, nonverbal autistic uh, daughter after my wife passed away and two tween boys. There's just sometimes you're just at the, you're hangry and everything else and, and you do something. And you, but, but immediately you're like, oh, that just, that wasn't good. But it's that sense of trying to figure out what this, what ultimately, because Jesus absolutely talks about a judgment like in this life and that there's there has to be some correction to bring you into right relationship to exist in that and so the the, the key point around all this is really just stripping it back and thinking about is the good good father like the good good father is 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 he going to is he set out to to pour wrath and vengeance and punishment or is he going to correct and discipline to bring you into right action, thinking, communion, union? I mean, that like that becomes really important. And I think a lot of this is the other thing I've been thinking a lot about. And I've been reading C. Baxter Kruger's uh, The Mediation of Christ. And it's been it's been really beautiful. And what you know, really what happened is and I think in a frame and if we think about this, God wasn't pouring his wrath on Jesus at the cross. We, our bitterness, our ugliness, our embitteredness, Jewish leaders, uh, Roman leaders of the world, Jews, Gentiles, the crowd, everyone, we were pouring our bitter enmity and hatred upon Jesus. Yeah. God wasn't in the scripture, doing that. It never says, in the scripture, it never says that, that the father poured out his wrath on the son all it says in relation to that dynamic is that the father was in the son while he was suffering on the cross reconciling the world to himself that's right. that's the specific description that we have um and, and um the other thing is that we understand god's punishment as the punishment of a father what we can understand immediately is that it's never you know paternal punishment is is never you know at least you know if it conforms to like the sort of archetype or ideal of you know fatherhood which god very much is it you know per, paternal punishment is never punitive for its own sake that's that's insane in in a great book i think it's called the doors of heaven by george saris um he said if i learned that my son my beloved son was swindling uh old women out of their pensions i would have to punish him you know, it's like, I would, you know, I'd have to punish the hell out yeah. of him yeah. um, because I love him. How can I let him do this? But but the thing is, the point is that punishment and that love are the same and the punishment is corrective. But, you know, the, the punishment and the love are the same. You know, just as McDonald said, the, the, the mercy is altogether just, just as the justice is altogether merciful. There is no division there. Um, uh, and then and, and that, that's and uh arguably it's all it's all present right there in the dominical the dominant you know dominical uh image of god as as a father we're, we're to take that as the controlling hermeneutic and to let us see what's there because it is about fundamentally you know interpreting the new testament it has to be about the spirit and some kind of vision as opposed to just reading out um uh the you know the, the letter of of the, the page just, you know, as our, our friend Wayne, you know, is fond of emphasizing in, in Paul, the, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Clearly, however, Jesus and Paul were reading the scriptures, it was not the same literal way as as the Pharisees of the time were reading it. Um, 
Yeah, and I, you know, one of the things is I can read this stuff, but I, I very easily uh, in Denzel Washington in Philadelphia talk about it, explain it to me like I'm a five five year old, you know, because you have you have to be able to kind of distill things down and look at things very simply, and you know, it's it's very obvious from a, a, really a plain reading. It's a plain reading. Go in the Gospels, you can see it. We were the ones nailing him to the cross. It, it, it was it was humanity that was rejecting its kind. Paul mentioned, which is true. We like our saints dead. <laughs> like we want Jesus dead. We want anyone who's really exuding light dead. We like our saints dead. We like our prophets dead because <laughs> they make us they unnerve us. Right. Um, you know, they make those things there. And so but I think I think it's it's because of. You know what your paradigm and your propositions are. You kind of have these slants that you want to do it. But when you just open your stuff up and you like, for example, you look at Jesus while that we're while he's on the cross and humanity, not just those people there as humanity's nailing them to the cross. He's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And in the road to Emmaus, when Jesus, you know, opened it up. Yeah, and, they couldn't yeah, see yeah. And by the beautiful thing I love about this is so they got the best Bible teaching ever. Right. And it assumed that that would be Cleopas and John who was was on the road with him and their hearts are burning. But they didn't know who what Jesus was. And it wasn't until the Eucharistic moment when he broke the bread. Oh, OK. Yeah. But but what he was saying was that all this stuff like this whole book, it's been about me. Like it, and he showed him from every everything, and he was like that cosmic key that unlocks everything. And when you look through the eyes of Jesus, and if you think about, you know, things like every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, I think in a when you, if you have a vengeful judicial view of God, do you think Jesus is going to have people, you know? An 80-year-old lady who wouldn't accept Jesus. Do you think he's going to have her at the end of a sword, bending her knee to him? Is that, is that who he is? No. There, at some point, no matter what it is, when you get in the presence of the person of Jesus and know and have this, you, you're not going to need to be forced to fall at the feet of the king. That's what happened to me just five miles down the road from where I'm sitting right now in a room in Prairie Village. I was face down in a prostrate position I'd never been in in my life at the feet of Jesus. That's what happens. It's not forced. It just happens, you know, and so as you start, you start working your way through this and, and unless you have a system, a judicial system and all these rules, pharisaic, this means this and this means this and we see this and, and so on and so forth. But when you just just, you know, that's why I would, I, I'm starting with my friends that I'm starting to share these things with is you just pull back and you just allow your natural intuition, your natural self. I think a lot of people are leaving the church because they're rejecting a lie about God. I, I, I think I think what they like that doesn't sound that's not right. That's not what's written on their heart. That's not the image that's in them. And so when God is a God of you've got to do these things right. Because right now he's absent. You know, you need to be cowering. You know, I need help. I need some covering. I got to do that. You know, is there a a, a worship movement towards him? Yes. 
But it's like, no, Christ is in you. The kingdom of God is within you. You bear the image. Yes, you are sick. It is tarnished. You are out of communion. You need to awaken to the reality of, of, of who you are. But you do not have to be afraid that he is a good, good father. He loves you. He is waiting for you to see you far off before you've ever asked for forgiveness to welcome, just to welcome you back. He just wants all of his children back. That is such a different thing than I was allowed to believe, <laughs> you know? And then it also confronts, which is this, I'm not... I had struggles and I had cognitive dissonances and I knew what I was trying to explain God's plan and gospel within those sorts of contexts with people. How hard it was to have to like swallow hard and say, well, but that, no, actually that glorifies God because that's actually better. But it's like, I knew that wasn't true like here, um, but I knew the person of Jesus was true. So I'm stuck in this weird deal where I had these cognitive dissonances. I knew the person of Jesus was true. I'm trying to figure these things out. And so like when you start pulling out to these common sense things, the other thing that I think is really interesting, I've been thinking about this. We so widely accept that one man, human, Adam, human, right? And Eve, she was involved in this too. Two people caused the downfall of everyone. Christ himself only has the capability to save a few. Who's going to win? So Adam, like we totally accept that one man can cause the fall of everyone, but yet we, we, and it is, it places this whole limitation on what Christ is, who God is. God's going to let Adam win. Like who wins? Does sin win or is God going to win? Because in, in, in annihilationism, in eternal conscious torment, God does not win. He loses most, he loves many or most souls forever into destruction does that like if that were a movie we would think that god sucks right so i'm kind of pulling this out and as people just like it and it, these things sound can sound alarming to certain people and it's like oh it's heresy like oh you know it's like no 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 like trust trust yourself and the thing will be is like when you get into the exegetical stuff on this and if you remove some biases, and I'm not saying we've got to remove around certainty, but when you actually start getting into this without a bias of thinking it has to be a courtroom, a judgment, wrath, and everything else, and you open it up, there is an extremely strong biblical exegetical case for it. And just look at Jesus, Cal. Jesus is the, it says, uh, I think it was the Hebrews, he's the exact representation of God. The exact nature of God is what they're saying. The exact image of God. As Jesus lived and moved and was, was he going around destroying people, punishing people? No, he never did. And here's the other thing. Any great leader, creator of the universe, we're called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute them and allow them to murder us. Barter, right? It's like Jesus. Is God going to ask us to do more than he's going to be willing to do? I mean, so this is the things where I'm really starting to get into my groove with my friends and the people that, that I know. And when I sense a door opening to where they have an open heart and we start just, I'm giving people the freedom to actually open up their hearts to the things they already know, Cal. And then... You can strong scriptural depth and smart thinkers and long time thinking like you, you, you're not going to be. And this isn't coexist. 
This isn't all roads lead to Jesus, although he'll gather all roads unto himself. This, this is not that progressivist sense of, it doesn't matter what you do. No, like George McDonald, he's talking about that unforgiveness is worse than murder. <laughs> like it's a call into absolute holiness. But the thing is, is like the moving response is, I no longer have to be afraid of God and I need this mercy. No, I get to come and just sit in my Abba's lap. That's what he wants. You know, like like Mary, who came and sat at his feet, you know, so there's a paradigm shift that I'm really hoping to the people that I love and know and I'm in real relationship with that. I hope I can open their hearts up to to just say, hey, just for just put it on the table as a possibility, like open your heart that it's a possibility. It is every bit as viable and it, and it includes judgment and it includes an all consuming fire. <laughs> And it includes free will and it includes something that I don't want. To, I don't even know what this transition to this other place is going to be. And I don't I don't know what that judgment's going to be. And it's it seems scary to me in some ways, you know, so there's none of that. Or put your annihilationism on the table and put your eternal conscious torment on the table. Open your mind. Let allow yourself to honestly put these things on the table. And if you do. I think a lot of people are going to be amazed at what the person of Christ will reveal to them in their hearts, Cal. You know, I think that so much of this comes down to like a kind of allowing yourself to see with a spiritual sight. And for me, what, what, what I think of most strongly when you talk about all that is, you know, Jesus, you know, his, his dominant metaphor is, is, is of God as a father. And you have the parable of the prodigal son. And, and of how willing the father is, is is to accept him back without judgment, right? You just you just just come back. I'll kill the fattened calf for you. And then you know it's like, but but Cal, hold on. This is just an image. We have the the book of Revelation describing how it's actually going to go. It's the book that dis, that speaks most directly to the final judgment. It has a book of life. It doesn't talk about anyone's name being added into the book of life. I go back to the parable of the prodigal son. And I and I hear the words of the older brother saying, "But father, I worked for you. Um, uh, you never you never killed a goat for for me and my friends to have a party. But I worked for you, and I never did what he did." And he said, "But I have to do this because this my son was dead, and now he is alive." To me, that is adding the name to the book of life. To that's that's my that's my new like hermeneutic, if you will. Right. That's where, if you will, I see scriptural justification for the idea that names can be added to the book of life but clearly this is this is different um than than you know sort of we um you know contemporary protestants or protestant influenced people are used to uh reading the bible but this is increasingly where i'm at so i have a question for you so so you grew up um hard krishna right is that a, is that a, is that the way to describe that yes Hare is there krishna. a certain yeah and then hard atheist very analytical and you still and I love the way you yeah I have things. to emphasize how much that position was not born of indifference but was truly based in in conscious um you know information devouring skepticism right right and so I want to ask you this questions because you know I think and by the way um universalism against the world a great podcast check it out Cal nice plug 
He might have a promo code where you can get some cheap uh, discounts on awesome goods sometime is when he, we were going to get him sponsored soon. But um, 100% it's going to be by on it. Um, <laughs> And um, and also some kind of CBD oil company. Actually, yeah, let's yeah. let's take a break right here. I, I need to um I need to just get more tea. Um, uh, you know that's that's the level that I'm rolling on. It's extremely hardcore. Um, so let's move into part two. So we had the first hour where we were kind of you know all over the board sharing things, but I think we were just sharing our heart about it. Let's get into part two. I want to dig into how you found your way into this because I think there's an I came from the heart. It sounds like you're coming from a very analytical. I came from the heart in the Bible. You came from a very analytical space into an idea of of believing in Christ and apocatastasis. Mm, so let's. Yeah. I would like to go there next. Okay, cool. Let's let's pause. Yeah. So I was I was raised in Texas. I was raised in East Dallas, um, the Iskon Hare Krishna Temple, um, and. Uh, you know, I when we went to the fair on at least one occasion, Big Tex was was heard to say, "Don't listen to the Hare Krishnas," and and you know, you would, we would go and do our Hare Krishna thing of um, you know, chanting and dancing in the street, and the street preachers would be saying, you know, um, you know, Hare Krishna isn't real, y'all are going to hell, etc. Um, and you know, so that was my that was my experience, and certainly. You know, Christianity, not well, I guess we were sort of universalist in our way, but you know, we, we also believed in karma and reincarnation. Um, and uh, uh, we didn't think they were going to hell, but still, we thought that they were, you know, terribly, you know, benighted, um, you know, that they were just, you know, seeing at a very low level of perception and, and so on. Um, and uh, so I, I had always kind of defined myself in opposition to Christianity, and that didn't stop when um, I stopped believe, when I stopped being a Hare Krishna. I just became an atheist. So certainly, I was always um, uh, I never really had that that kind of Protestant understanding, you know, of the Bible that we've been t talking about, or that so let's say modern evangelical understanding that we've been talking about. Although in another sense, a deeper sense, my worldview was so formed by it, despite not having grown up directly within it, that it's like I couldn't think outside of that frame. And so rather than, you know, being on one side of the proposition, I was simply on the other. But it was fundamentally like the same worldview in some ways. Yeah. And so, so you come in, you go hard atheist. You're very sharp. You think about things. You're very much into philosophy. Uh, thinking through systems, uh, very well read, come at things analytically. Um, how, first off, how did you, so then talk a little bit, just to give people a little frame here of how you found your way into believing in Jesus. And then how did you, how did you come to the realization that you were open to the idea? Because I know you also, you're, you, you are hopeful you're a hopeful apocatastasis guy. Um, I think you leaned heavily that way, but you 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 withhold some. There are some things that you're still kind of holding out that potentially some things you need to see. So, kind well, of I, yeah, I would just say you know it's 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 ultimately I cannot say what God will do. I you know I you know as simple as that on some level I cannot say what God will do. It is not for me to say. It is for me as a son to imagine the heart of my father with all my heart, soul, and mind. 
And based on that, I have ideas. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll put it like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so how does this analytical atheist, like what, what was that genesis moment for you, uh, in, uh, using that term loosely, I guess, into where ultimately you're like, wait a minute, I think this Jesus stuff might be real. What, what, what precipitated that? Yeah, that's a very good question, because I would say that it actually happened in stages and it was sort of piecewise. Um, the first, Jordan Peterson um, and uh, helping me to see beyond that kind of um, either you're a, you're an evangelical Christian um, or you're a new atheist paradigm. So helping me to understand the symbolic and the existential uh, meaning of the Bible and making it really true. Um, you know, um, you know, in, in the deep sense of that word, in terms of implication for action, um, and so that really got me back into scripture because I, you know, I I was very like restless, and you might even say like mentally ill, at least with a serious mood disorder, you know, during my teens and early twenties, mm -hmm. and. I, I thought in some sense, like, that's as restless as it gets. You know, you have all your animal spirits and because you're young and, you know, that it doesn't get any more intense than that. And I realized that's not true. Uh, <laughs> that I'm reminded of a phrase by Terrence McKenna in which he says, this is as dead as it gets. It's only up from here. And I realized as I got older and I kind of made some some deep and serious decisions about what I wanted to do with my life, that, that it doesn't get easier. You, you get more restless. And so I was driven again to the scriptures that I thought I had already figured out and dismissed as a fairy tale. Um, and um, I was initially pretty, pretty, um, a lot like Nisha, I was pretty um, impressed by the Old Testament. I thought it had a kind of beauty and coherence that the New Testament simply didn't have and that it just kind of, um, I thought the New Testament was a sour note, that it wasn't really hearing, you know, what key the song was in. And then suddenly you have stuff about like the ineffable absolute God, who's actually really, when you think about it, he's just a byword for ultimate reality. And he's so absolute that we can't even limit him to, you know, just being a person, because then he's not not a person. He's absolutely absolute and infinitely infinite. And if the, we take the God thing seriously, however... If we define God like that, it becomes awfully difficult to, to distinguish him from nothingness and non-being itself if we're just too apathetic and negative in our theology. And that was something I was dealing with propositionally, or at least recognizing as, as an error. And, you know, because if you read David Bentley Hart uh, without enough charity for the people that he criticizes, you would just get the idea, well, new atheists are idiots. And classical theists always had it right all along. But really, when, when you investigate the metaphysics of classical metaphysics closely, I think there are many problems. Um, and so it's not as if, you know, uh, classical theism comes to the rescue of uh, intellectually bankrupt uh, materialism if we can't actually make our definition of God or definitions, plural, make any kind of coherent sense. Um, uh, you know, so I was kind of dealing with that. Um, um, and then, uh, but I, I was taking it, I was, I was listening to it all, you know, because uh, Jordan Peterson was taking it all seriously. And, and I, I was, I was in graduate school and I was just really, I was really unmoored. Um, I was mm -hmm. just, just going through a lot. <laughs> and I think I hear my, my little son doing his, his screeching noises. Maybe it's time <laughs> to put my headphones in. He makes his dolphin noises. 
it's great making sounds for the sake of making yeah. them yeah absolutely man check it out good. he's practicing yeah i call him baby dolph <laughs> Can't hear you. I don't think you're on mute either. Well, that's not good. I guess I guess we're just gonna have to have a baby soundtrack. It doesn't. It doesn't. Actually, it's not that bad, and it's it's endearing. Okay. Well, uh, I was just saying that. Um, so they're opening you up. You're, Jordan Peterson is opening you up. You're starting to see this. Yeah, well, you know, I was, the, the thing is that I was suffering a lot. You know, I had always been suffering. But what I just realized is that you don't, you don't, you don't stop. You don't get comfortable. You just suffer worse. Um, and so I, I found myself driven um, to God. You know, I was just praying in the Catholic Church when no one was there uh, on campus. And um, but I was also listening to like like reformed people uh, online because I, I was just I didn't care for like sectarianism. It's like I'm not going to keep the food on my plate separately. I'll just let it all mix yeah, yeah. together. But um, um, I listened to Doug Wilson uh, um, quoting or, or simplifying Jonathan Edwards. And he said, Jesus, because I was really just trying to figure out, you know, what's going on with Jesus? How is it that the, cre the creator is now somehow a creature the infinite is the finite um uh, uh the universal is the particular etc like isn't this just a category error um you know that's what i was that was kind of what was on the table for me you know in terms with jesus and and what doug wilson said that i you know propositionally or on the surface level didn't accept at the time he said it but which i also immediately accepted as soon as he said it that started my my let's say you know direct, explicit, you know, uh, you know, uh, relationship with Jesus um, was, um, he said, he was quoting Jonathan Edwards, he said, Jesus is God, and Jesus is God's idea, and Jesus is God's idea of himself. And so when I was thinking about it in terms of that, that suddenly I had a way of holding it all together, of uh, the New Testament and the Old, and that 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 gave me the peace, I think, to to just just keep reading the Bible and, and reintegrating it because I had read it at least once before. So you but were starting to synthesize. You had these yeah. ideas yeah. and thoughts in terms about how the world works in a scientific kind of realm. You're starting to get opened up into this idea. Well, they weren't they weren't fitting together at all. The scientific and the and the scriptural, they weren't at all. Like I would wonder things like, you know, space time, like where in space time is Jesus? Like how does this right. work? Because I was a physicalist. Right. But the thing is, because I was a physicalist, um, um, but everything I was learning about God and Jesus it seemed to fly in the face of, you know, rational science and, and just, you know, rational thought. I thought that the intellect was something that would have to be cauterized or sacrificed uh, um, uh, in order to, you know, be uh, a Christian um, because everything, the only source of knowledge about God was this particular interpretation and understanding of the Bible, which flies in the face of reason and is consistent with the reformed idea that your intellect is darkened by the fall and you're utterly blind and stupid in spiritual matters. 
Um, nonetheless, you know, it's like that's I, I felt compelled to believe in God, despite none of it making any sense, you know, at least that I could make. And that was why I, I kind of identified with the Calvinist label during that time, because um, I was like a Christian physicalist. And I also was just just like compelled. Um, uh, it, it wasn't like even that I really felt like, oh, oh, I really wish I could believe it. But like in, on some sentimental level, I wished I could believe it, but I just couldn't find the reasons. It was like I looked at the case. And I was like, no, this case sucks. And I and I still was compelled, almost perversely, to keep reading the Bible. So um, you're getting in. He's drawing you in. By the way, it doesn't matter how you get drawn in because we can be redirected, pulled further up, further in. Is there so so like our friend Chad talks about? He had a moment. Uh, he had been pursuing God, relationship with God. Right. Also got this call into this further up, further in. Didn't. It's kind of kind of almost the word Jesus offended him in some ways and like Christians did too. And then, but he, but yet he's getting this call into Christianity and somebody said, why don't you just read the red letters? And then he had this moment to where he was listening to, to just what Jesus was saying. And then he heard the story of Legion and he yeah. talks about, I was once one way. And then once he heard that story, then he was changed. Like it was, there was a moment. So you, you had this gradually moving in. Do you, do you have anything like that that was was a moment to where because it, it is always gradual and sometimes the revelation is delayed past the moment it happens until you look back and say, oh, that was a revelation moment. No, it is was there, a pretty punctiliar moment when, when Doug Wilson said that. So Doug Wilson. So when Doug and Wilson what happened said after that, that was what happened after that was I had been a smoker for about three years smoking about half a pack a day. So I'm weird because I look older than, you know, someone who got out of graduate school a couple of years ago. Um, and it's because I, I, think, am, I guess you were 32. I am 30. I am almost 32. Yeah. The answer is I just went to school really late. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I did a weird thing. I, I kind of just borrowed a you know, whole bunch of student loans and went to school really late and became a full time student. Uh, I did what I was supposed to have done like five years uh, earlier, five years late. I went um, to law school. I went to law school at 29. I was a CPA. I worked. Quote and unquote, did things. supposed to have done. And yeah. then, and then I ended up going back to law school at 29. So I, yeah. I, so I, and I graduated at 32 at law school. And, so I had and incidentally, if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't go to school. I would just like just learn to code and do, you know not pay anything. Um, but you know, uh, <laughs> God, God has his has his reasons for for doing what he does right um and so when did, uh, so what so when did this Doug Wilson moment happen like year two three four when did that happen that was um that was goodness so when did I I have to remember when I graduated I want to say I graduated in 2019 so, so, very then, so that happened in 20 I want to say it happened in the fall of 2018 okay I, so I this is all wrong. pretty darn recent it is. Start, so then the Doug Wilson moment happens. And that, so now you're just on your path into now, you, now you're really trying to find your way and you're restarting. Yeah, because, you because a lot about Jesus. I, I, I test, I, you know, I did what Jesus said you shouldn't do. I put, I put God to the test and I said, well, Jesus, if you're, <laughs> if you're, if, if you are like actually God also somehow, uh, <laughs> um, then let me do like, uh, was it Saul or David? I can't even remember. My thinking was like fuzzy. And it, in some ways around scripture, it still is. But I was like, David poured the bowl of water out when he was thirsty. And and I was like, um, I'll, 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 I'll see if you can make me give, give this habit up. And I actually have not smoked a day since. 
Um, yeah, I've, um, uh, and I'm still like addicted to it, I would say, because I crave it all the time, weirdly. But but I, I have been given grace from God to, to just resist that temptation. Um, uh, but but, you know, that that happened. Um, and I still didn't believe, you know, just like when, when a year and a half later, I took psychedelics and, and the, the whole experience was pointing me strongly toward God. I was like, that doesn't mean anything. I was on drugs, you know. Uh, uh, so it, it's like I was a hard nut to crack. Uh, uh, you know, as, but but that 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 did happen. And that was kind of part of my journey. But the thing that I would emphasize is that my faith was very weak because because I still thought like an atheist. My heart was pulling one way, but but everything I I, I seemed to know, yeah, and, and and like my like semi-scientific background. I went to UTD. I, I studied neuroscience among other things. I always considered myself a good little nerd at that. Um, and in fact, the school invited me to tutor the subject based on my grades in, in one of the classes, and it was a famously difficult class. Um, um, and so I thought in that way, and I thought also in terms of like, um, I have that, well, I have that, I have that fight, I have that fight every day. And I think a lot of us do. And even, even in Christian context where uh, Lord of Spirits podcast, I loved how Father Damick and um, Father Dion talked about it, which is we have our atheistic mind. And so like the example was this, which is COVID breaks out and in certain Orthodox countries, they were out in the streets you know, holy water and stuff and praying and some people's response. And this is, and by the way, I would, if you're a Christian, listen to this, their response was, oh, that's great, but let's get the, let's, let's get to the science. Okay. That's basically, that's cute. Okay. Yeah. Do your prayers. This is serious stuff, guys. Let's get to the science. And yes, the science is important, but no, that other stuff is important. Like no, if going you prayed, to God, it work. <laughs> that's, that's so, my belief. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a Western uh, brought up in a very materialist, like, you know, 80s, you know, 80s and, and 90s, you know, kind of young man in the 70s, but really the 80s were where I really came of age. Um, very much it was uh, an inerrancy, four corners, literalist, scientific, we're searching for the ark. This stuff is every word is literally true. And, you know, yes, he got all the animals on a little ark and, you know, and then there was a literal fish. And like, I had all this stuff that as a, as a young dude, I'm kind of like, I don't really like, you know, I like because I wasn't opened up this idea of the, the, the truer than true, the symbology of it all and, and, and what the, that stuff meant, which I'm now fully open and, and alive to. But I I still my fight every day is a worldly view. What I can just see tangible, quantify everything else. And then this mystic, real connective, the end of the, the God maker you know father almighty maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible right like i struggle with that daily still and that's the You're thing right. and everyone does. Right everyone does everyone does and so much of us as christians i think and i would say myself and um I, the way that the I way think, that our friend luke would put it is is like you know if you're at that moment with jesus and the fish and the bread the question is is there enough or is there not enough well, part of us wants to say, look, it's like two fish and what, three pieces of bread or something like that. So the answer is not enough. Um, but the, the truth is there is enough. Um, uh, um, anyway. Um, and so that, but that, that transfer, so I would say, and I know what you exact, and you were coming from a place where it was even more harder, more physicalist, like more materialist than, 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm this Holy Spirit wooey sort of a guy. And so it's easier for me to be attracted to and, and touch in that. But and it's, it's, all, it's truly worse than that, because it's not like I was just some it's it's you know, let's let's imagine that I was somebody who studied physics and, and, and I could say, well, I'm a rationalist and I'm a scientist and that's how I see the world. For me, it was a lot deeper than that, because I not only thought in terms of neuroscience, I also thought in terms of um, like uh, diagnostic categories from from like the diagnostic statistical. Manual. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And and it had been suggested to me when I was younger and, and more disturbed um, uh, by by a couple of mental health professionals that I might have uh, what what is called schizotypal personality disorder. Um, and so I kind of part of me looked at myself through that lens and it's like, well, on one hand, you know, maybe all your God fairy tale stuff is real. On the other hand, maybe this is just the intensification of a of a, of a personality disorder which you which you have congenitally, um, and and this is just you know the the course that it's taking uh, for you. Your your you know your your mind is is succumbing to decay on some fundamental level. Well, and it's that whole divided man thing that we talk about. And so as you start making this move, so and you still i'm sure it's probably a struggle for you so you're making this move into it when did it, it actually isn't I'll, I'll i'll just make that point right now it, it you know based on the things that happened more that happened later in my journey with god that he just burned all that up it's a it's a, awesome. it's a miracle so so exactly so further god does it right like yeah, so he does that so so and I still live with chronic conditions, like I would say, an almost physiological depression, and and um, and a sleep disorder. And and I know that one day God will God will lift these too, but always in His time. I don't know, you know, why He does what He does in the order that He does, but but um, you know, I saw just just as He took as just as He 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 magicked Himself out of the hat, um, and He did right. what I thought was impossible. I know, you know, that 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 these these conditions will be lifted one day as well so, so you find your way in you're being transformed you find your way into bom so you start and i know you uh you read very much a lot of academic sort of things you're definitely in it you uh and I, I should also say he healed me of a lot of my mental illness to a degree that I, is that is i'm not even sure it should be possible like if you know if you go by the diagnostic statistical manual but but um but but anyway, you know, that happened, too. So so you find your way in there. And so so let, let's when, when did you was there a moment to where. Or, or what you did, what started leading you into the the realm where you started seeing ah, an apocatastasis sort of a of a reality well, to so things? What happened was I had, after I graduated, I was working as a speech therapist in a nursing home. And that was very dark in many ways. Um, and I won't go into too much detail about that. Um, but I learned a lot about God in there. I, but but my faith was weakening at that time because it could only get weaker as I was more comfortable. In graduate school, I was very uncomfortable. Um, and, and as I got more comfortable, it was like, well, you know what? It's just tales we tell ourselves to cons console ourselves kind of thing. The flame really almost went out. Maybe it even did. But but I had, you know, like in my kind of scientific way, I placed faith in, in, in research that said, you know, like we take these psychedelic mushrooms and Jordan Peterson talked about them a lot too. He's like, whoopee. Um, uh, then, you know, you can get rid of your depression. So I was like, okay, let's do that. 
And uh, so I took like the five gram Terrence McKenna dose. It didn't get, didn't, didn't do anything to my depression, by the way. Um, but, but it just gave me that, well, you know, the experience that I had, I can talk about it or not, but, but um, it is relevant as, as all things are relevant when we talk about God, who is ultimate reality, um, but also personal. Um, uh, and not merely beyond personal and impersonal, which is the same as to be impersonal in the final analysis. Um, but but if I can sort of echo David Bentley Hart there, um, although he meant that in reference to good and evil, um, not personal and impersonal. But, um, you know, I I had that experience. And, and, and again, Peterson did, you know, did predict this. He said that people who have that experience, they they become extremely interested in questions of, of you know, ultimate meaning once again. And I reread um, a, a work that had always kind of stuck in my craw when I when I consumed different bits of analytic philosophy. It was it was the cognitive theoretic model of the universe by Christopher Langan. Okay. Because parts of it I just straight up disagreed with because it was basically a kind of philosophical idealism. He might not agree with such a such a simplistic reduction, but but you know I think on one level you can view it as a kind of philosophical ideas idealism. And then this says that ultimate reality is essentially the mind of God and that on some level reality is mind. Um, uh, and, and you know, I thought, well, I just don't believe that, you know, when I had read it first or skimmed it first when I was about 20 or so, 19. Um, but, but there were some things that he said that always remained with me because they were interesting and true. And so I had that in my mind as a reference point, something to return to. If he's like, if you want to like ground your faith in God in something serious, look at this, because you never actually gave this sufficient attention. Um, um, you know, at the time I, I, I gave it all the attention that I could, but, but 10 years of, of like philosophical reflection and critical distance uh, you know, gave me the idea that I bet if I looked at this again, it would it would be with new eyes, and and I did, and a lot of his points landed to to a degree that I would still say that on some level, some when when you're talking about certain kinds of analytic philosophy or or, or metaphysics, I am a Langanian. I you know at least to the degree that I understand him, I've been extremely influenced by him. Um, and uh, incidentally, his his views helped me to understand what for me were formerly just you know, irresoluble uh, theological paradoxes. I see them as sort of sailing between the Scylla and the Charybdis of, of classical theism and process theism, you know, where it's understood that each of them has their problems. On another level, I see it as allowing us to hold together the idea that God is somehow on both extremes at once, that, you know, he, he, he is both like changing and changeless in the ways that are you know, described by each of those kind of schools. Essence, essence like. and energies, baby. Yeah, something like that. You know, there, God, God is a mystery, but he also makes sense, which, you know, just like. Coincidence of opposites, McGilchrist, yeah, right? Right. So, so um, anyway, um, uh, and, and, and after that, 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 that work really just, it, it destroyed my materialism. You know, that's, it certainly did that. But, but the thing is also, see what I said before, it was like, what it seemed was like, all that can be known about God comes from a source that apparently flies in the face of reason. And therefore we might conclude with Calvin that, that the intellect is just hopelessly darkened. But now I saw that no, actually everything is unified 
and that God, God is, you know, God is, is knowable and, and, um, um, you know, even if, you know, not like a human being can know him exhaustively and define him and vivisect him and pin him down like a butterfly or something. But, but, you know, but in other words, that, that God, there are no, one of the, to the extent we can know he's knowable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, I mean, you know, the reform people might say the same thing, but see, one of the things in the CTMU, that's a yeah. big part of it is this idea of like, no, absolutely unbridgeable discontinuities. There's a principle in it called sin diffionesis, which really just means difference in sameness. And what that means is anytime there is a difference, there must be an underlying underlying medium between the two like differands. Some connection, um, there's, there's always that connection. Yeah, yeah, in other words, reality is, ultimate reality is one and it is unified. Um, and that, that it can't be that God has some kind of goodness that is just um, unbridgeably, um, distinct um, from human goodness. It can't be that the truth is just absolutely unknowable to the human intellect, etc. In, in other words, it was speaking to a, a profound unity that exists between like God's attributes and our ability to know them. And when that came to be, it was like, it's like, now it's like God is for real. You can actually use your mind to understand God and not just doubt and mistrust any like thing that your heart might say about God. Because um, my heart says, well, maybe God is like this, but the book says, you know, and the way we read the book says it has, you know, it has to be that that you know, some people are elected to eternal damnation for some unknowable reason that you that only seems offensive to you because you're at enmity with God. But maybe you're in God's image and you and he actually see eye to eye on some things. You know, that's 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 the kind of like more. more so natural so this is that whole which we hear a lot of ways. This was your unity and multiplicity moment. Absolutely. And as Jess talks about, I loved it. We were in a voice chat one time, Jess P. I had, he talked, he talked about integration, which is you have these things that you're wrestling, you're trying to know at some point when they integrate, Jess says that's when healing happens. Yeah. Yeah. The integration of differentiated parts. There was a very important book that I read called Mindsight that actually, see, there was a moment before I even like propositionally accepted God where I had really turned to God, but I was still an atheist. But see, that moment was, was I had, I was just, I felt such numbness. I couldn't feel anything. And it was the, the, the emotional numbness and depersonalization were so profound that I wasn't even aware that I wasn't feeling anything. So um, as you started getting into this to kind of bring this home is where I think coming back to where we were in the last hour, which is this person. So you start, you start, you're seeing this unity and multiplicity, right? Yeah. Your materialism is being destroyed. But one of the things that started happening to you is when you see this that there's this other good and i would describe this as is i'm the icon which i've always known the imagio deo the icon the imagery that ultimately you realized all of a sudden we have this connection between the creator and the created right the ineffable and and us the particular and i'm assuming that's what ultimately through that connection led you to start seeing this Apocatasasis is the ultimate reconciliation to all is you were like, this thing's well, not going to utterly destroy this, that there has to be some movement of this, reconciliation. This is, this is weird, but but just listen to this. Like, like when I was an atheist, I always felt like in my heart, like if I just were to become who I am, like temperamentally at this deep level that I feel I will someday become a Christian. And then when I started being Christian, I had this thought when I learned what Christian universalism was. And there was just this particular image of, of, of uh, Jesus nailed to the cross. Anyway, you know, but that, that 
I thought of that and I thought, well, if I became who I really was, you know, like, so, I, you know, initially that seed was planted, but I thought he's like, you know, you can't, just like I used to think, you know, I would like to believe in this pie in the sky God, but you look around you, you have to be rational. And then later it's like, well, you know, I'd like to believe in your pie in the sky universalism, but look, this is what the book says. And we, you know, um, and uh, so, so the seed was there, but like when, when I realized it's like, no, you know, God is not just, 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 um, he's not just so utterly transcendent and disconnected that, that you can't, you can't know him. It's, he's actually imminent. He's, he's, he's right here. He's in everything he's in you. Um, and you're yeah. in his image. You know, once I had that, I realized it's like, actually the sky's the limit. Ask the father, whatever you want, you know? And, 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 and see in him, you know, just, just, you know, is it God, God asks you to, to, to imagine him with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you seek his face, right? He wants you to know him, just like the father of a child. I know this now, the father wants the child to try to know him. The child cannot begin to know him, but he still loves every effort the child makes at trying. Uh -huh. So that's what God asks you to do. When I do that in my heart and I ask God, who are you? I, you know, I, I, I only, I only see the perfect father. So, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Amen, brother. Ah, so yeah, that was really good. Now I, and I appreciate you being just kind of so open there. That makes sense to me on a personal level for you, how you found your way in to being open to the beautiful, the good news, the beautiful story of God's ultimate purpose for all of created beings, which is to have that moment to see what he really did for us. Yeah. And that cross was reconciled. There, there was a reconciliation and a healing that I could, like there was a, there was a, a, a beauty and a connection that you saw in that. And what that did is in terms of the unification, the mercy, the, the, the reconciliation that I can see why now seeing how that, that moved you is how now that that's quite frankly, apocatastasis speaks to your heart and the reality that you feel and you know that that has been revealed to you through the father. Yeah, there's, there's more I have to say on that. You know, um, I'm wondering, though, at this time, if maybe we can possibly take another break. I want to see if I can help um, with my son, see if there's anything I can do, because I, I don't know quite why he's fussing right now. So we'll come back to part three. And then one of the things I want to do a cool thought experiment with you, a time-space thought experiment, and we'll tease it when we come back, is the cross being the, the genesis moment of all of creation. Right, for sure. For sure, yeah. All right. Well, we're back after another break, and um, you know, one of as as I think about, you know, we kind of the last hour I meandered around a little bit too much about orthodoxy and stuff like that. But that was my story, and then I loved hearing the part of your story. And I think we've both come <clears throat> through these different journeys. The further up, the further in, more is going to be revealed. Sort of thing is finding our ways to this idea of a of a of a loving father and a reality through like you talked about the ineffable and the infinite and that's why you know i think we all think about what happens is is 
you, know, you see Pajot and uh, Jordan Peterson. Um, I see this in a lot of orthodoxy in terms of incarnation, in terms of the coming down. Is that you know we need he needed to come down into <laughs> something that we could see into a per. You know what I mean? He had to he drops down into this yeah. point in time in Kairos into our to our history to to reveal to us like it says in Hebrews the exact representation of his nature. So so we can have so we have some way to even grasp the ineffable, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it happens in the, in, in the person, you know, of Christ. And as we've seen how Christ lived and who he was, and as he's on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we see how he lived and how he called us into action and the, a, a beatific life and what that looks like and how he lived. And all of a sudden it, it gives this picture that I think it's very fair to at least have an open mind and a heart to that. Wait a minute. God, this, this is a love story from the beginning and the end, you know, that, that it's a love story. It's not a law story. And that what has happened is this, this reconciliation, this, uh, this, this reunion, this communion, this reunification of all of humanity back into Christ, because everything was created in him, through him, for him, right? Without him, nothing was made, that ultimately that, that God has this, 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 this plan of love and, 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 and reconciliation, which, which fits into your world about how you were talking about the cognitive science, but this unity and multiplicity and this thing that calls us well, together. All that stuff, all that stuff was kind of BS anyway. And, and very many of those studies uh, do not, do not successfully replicate. Um, <laughs> well, but I think, but I think a lot of those things, I think, you know, one of the things you see is There's that, something there, but, but I, but well, also it's, it's kind of false. Well, it's like, it's but like, anyway, that's an aside. That's not. Well, that's it's like Newtonian physics are now nested into Einsteinian, right? So, you know, it, there's still a basis that's true, and then Einstein takes and it's it's there's it's nested in here, and so we see all these fractals. Look, oh my gosh, I'm looking like Paul Vanderbilt. We see all these fractals, but there there are these things that as as human beings we we're studying, noticing, figuring out these things that that are real and are true, um, but they're absolutely, they're all nested within an ultimate reality of of Christ and, and, and of God and of the of and of the ineffable, right? And so um, you know part par, part of that is and I and so I think I heard um I heard a, a, a Father Barnabas pal, I love him. And one of the things he was talking about was, um, let's just say, and, and every Christian could say this, is that the one of the dangers of, let's just say, a false doctrine or a false teaching is not that it's untrue, it's everything that it does get right, everything that is true about it, right? Because people can hang on to that and kind of glom onto that, but it's that little nuance. And it only takes 2% like seeing original sin wrong, seeing the cross as wrath of God versus, I mean, these little slight nuances changes everything in the way the bias in which you read things and you, and by the way, what you impute to God's um, character and who he is and then who we are. I mean, these slight little differences uh, can make the difference in, 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 how, in how we do that. So, you know, one of the things that, 
so as you start making it, so you start making this way, you had these things that did that. And it sounds like David Bentley Hart. Is there someone within the Christian Universalist? Like I know I love Robin Perry and some others. Is there is there some moment where you really started to latch on to? Like, wait a minute. I really think this makes sense. Was it David Bentley Hart? Was it Robin Perry? Like, what, what was your transition to where you started to really start to land into the, this makes sense to me? I'm really leaning this way. Well, in in, in trying to interpret um, the the CTMU, I was having to get sort of more um, specific in in the essentially theological questions that I was raising, and at, at some point, I just came to understand clearly that that. God is is love, and we can see Jesus as the Son of God for that reason. Um, and when I did that, it seemed to me that the conclusion of universalism was inescapable. Um, when I was looking at it through the lens of, you know, Jesus is Son of God, why? Because God is love. Um, and you know, like, and, and take, beginning to take that as my hermeneutic, uh, rather than I don't know whatever I had been, whatever like Calvinistic. Or, or yes, no, and like I, I was using before and put a fine point on that. That I shared this with with Wayne Fair the other day. That when you when you when love is your hermeneutic, just that that really radically changes everything. And one of the things that I think is really interesting, and I've engaged, I've had, I've dealt with this with with you know people in our little corner of the internet, but other people there is, and when you see people like the Love Unrelenting channel. Uh, Keith Giles is one of the guys on there, and he had a great podcast where he's like, atheists don't have any problem when he says God is love, period, that God is just love. They don't have a problem with that. Or nuns or whatever. The people who have the huge, the biggest problem with just saying God is love are Christians. That's, yeah. They fill up the comments like, no, but he's also anger and he's wrath and he's vengeance. Like, it's really, it's a really, it's a really interesting phenomenon. But I, but I, God is love as a hermeneutic makes so much sense to me when i had that hermeneutic um for me the the universalism and and basically the vision that you know i've been a you know both articulating and exploring in my little podcast and project that came to me basically all at once it was right there immediately in embryo now david bentley hart was was kind of this this joyful discovery that once i realized that there's something there is something to you know, theism, you know, like intellectually, and that that really just just that reality was far more beautiful and 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 rich and, and intricate than I had ever imagined. And it was essentially psychedelic. That's 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 how it felt. Like it felt like one and it still feels like one long like psychedelic trip. It, it feels kaleidoscopic and um just just you know just reve revelatory and fractal and all these things that we kind of associate with with you know psychedelics. Um uh but once I once I reached that, I, I found out, wow, like people like David Bentley Hart are actually right about stuff. Actually, they're right about a lot. Um, and and, and uh, so I, I, I found it like it's like you can believe all this stuff that he's saying, like has some basis in reality. And so I was listening to David Bentley Hart and it was just I remember those days very clearly where he was just changing the way that I understood the world. Because I understood things very much through the lens of Darwinian evolution, but David Bentley Hart said something to the effect that what, in a sense, what is driving evolution are transcendentals of you know, like 
goodness, beauty, and truth that are that are um, we begin to apprehend them, you know, in the kind of spatio-temporal, physical lives that we lead here. But but fundamentally, these 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 things that we seek, you know, in in Darwinian fitness, they um, shall we say converge or 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 triangulate, you know, at some horizon that is transcendental. Um, and and just understanding the way that consciousness and intelligence are fundamental to the way that the cosmos you know lays itself out and evolves. So for like David Bentley Hart, like I see for for guys like you who very much have contemplated metaphysical things, ontological things, like really are getting up here in these higher academic thinkings. It seems like it and seems when I like read that a, all shall be saved. Yeah. When I read that all shall be saved, I I think that that. That it wasn't so much like that he exposed me to universalism as just suddenly I was feeling a great like sympathetic resonance yeah. to something that that I because I I was already pretty hardcore universalist before I read that book, and when I read that book, which is the best book that exists on the topic of Christian. Well, and so for me, but, like I like David, like so I like David Bentley Hart. I do and, too. And and I've read it now. I'll just say for me, it's not within. <clears throat> I'm, I am not an academic who has spent a bunch of time in philosophical or metaphysical, those sorts of things. And Neither am I. Like, he has a vocabulary that is so big that, quite frankly, he uses words that I have to Google a lot. And I'm, same here. But I can intuit my way through through him, through him. But but when I actually Google the word, I'm like, oh, that's actually the perfect word. <laughs> like, like he picks it's not just trying to show off like I was like, oh, I get why he used that word. So I can. But I think there are folks like I see David Bentley Hart for for folks like like you really because I, I had certain intellectual hurdles that I had to be able to get across. Like, for example, evolutionary issues that were, were, were raging in the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, I, I'm this rational thinking kid. And there, there were just some things that I were being taught that just I couldn't quite reconcile and make sense of make sense of and for me my what really turned the corner for me was george mcdonald um and i got this version um you know who is the who c.s lewis says is his man his inspiration yeah, yeah. is for for him you know this is less metaphysical and more an exhortation and a um to me a very common sense like the stuff that he just that he makes such. He's, he's actually the best. He's the best modern theologian bar none. That's that's how I would describe yeah. George MacDonald. And his his unspoken sermons, and I love this edited and abridged by this Roland Hine version. I find it very accessible. And for me, just reading all the way up through um, to they talk about the creation in Christ and light, and then the justice sermon. Oh my gosh! Like because uh, I've consumed thousands of hours of of sermons i mean literally thousands that's that's my if you would say what i did the most over the past 15 years was consume sermons and so for me i didn't spend a time in an academic sense that this <clears throat> this really george mcdonald spoke to me at a level that i could approach it and it was see, it awakened see. me to things that i wanted to believe or felt were true and right in front of me in a way i could understand i'm like it's all right here if we talk about like this Jordan Peterson, I guess, and maybe ultimately borrowed from Jung idea, I don't know its exact provenance, but like there are cycles or lengths of time over which truths are true. 
And there are certain truths that are true over very long, you know, uh, you know, segments or or cycles of cycles, um, and and that you have like something like eternity is like the longest of time frames, the game of games, and then the truths that resonate over these these eons or the eon of eons, and McDonald's is consistently resonating at this mythic level. Um, that is what is so different from his. Uh, about his about his theology c.s lewis is what's also great about c.s lewis is the way that he's like he's of his time and place and um, he has his feet on the ground and he's engaging with the issues of his time which are still very much the issues of our time but mcdonald is just like his consciousness is so is so upward and 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 and, and pointed at the sky and he's just living in the in the world of myth of true myth um, right. And and uh, that that is just it's it's just so different. Um, I read on Wikipedia that that he something like the the way it was described was he encouraged his readers to rediscover um, God as Father and and to experience the quickening of imagination that 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 occurs you know when when you do and that's that's just one hundred percent where I'm at and so in that sense I'm only really now discovering and getting into George MacDonald. Um, cause, uh, you know, I, I, there was a time when C.S. Lewis kind of broke my world, you know, open, um, where, where he was, cause I was still an atheist when I read C.S. Lewis and loved C.S. Lewis, but, but I was seeing that what I felt was like, okay, imagine if you did live forever, then these, these ethical principles that he's describing are like the generalizations of certain ethical principles that, um, we live in the here and now. So like in mathematics, it's an idealized world. And we can take something like the sine function, which is originally uh, developed or conceived with respect to, you know, uh, uh, triangles, but we can like now, we can just have like this abstract sine function that that runs forever, um, you know, in an idealized world. And and similarly, I'm, I'm botching the math because I don't actually understand math, but, <laughs> but like at all. No, just kidding. I, I just never, I never took math beyond algebra. I never took trig. But you know, just get the idea of something like this, that right. that um, that uh, you know, in an idealized world, we can see what the generalization of certain earthly principles would look like, and they're still beautiful. And so that was what I felt about like the moral generalizations that I was getting in C.S. Lewis. There was a time when you know that broke my world open, um, but at that time I could not have read or understood MacDonald in the way that I do right. now. I think I had to go through C.S. Lewis. Well, we all have these avenues. And so like one of the things that helped me as a in as a teenager and into my 20s is when, when I would when I'd wonder, am I believing in something stupid? Like, you know what I mean? Am I tricked? Like, is this just some sort of construct and something, a relic of an of of stupid old people that that made up things in the past or whatever? Like I can always come back to someone like a C.S. Lewis, just on a simple level. Like, again, I just kind of simply have like, OK. He's way smart, <laughs> like way smarter than me. And he was an atheist and found his way in. And so I used to really lean into C.S. Lewis. And I think a lot, I think in, in the West, we all, I think it seems he's pretty universal. He's loved across denominations. Um, you know, that that was always a good, good entry point for me. And then, you know, I think that, the, by the way, if you want the good stuff, the hunter proof, and you want to go beyond Lewis, and I really mean that, it's right here. His the Genesis moment and who he, who he gives maximal credit to. And, you know, I, so I think when we're trying to think in terms of folks that I'm communicating with, 
Like when I run into what I would consider someone who maybe is not as well versed in the field, the the philosophical and the academic, and and wants to get in those realms, which we you know we run into a lot of folks in this little corner. But maybe someone like like me who has spent years and years and years in their Bible, consuming those things, familiar with Lewis. I feel like George McDonald is is the place I'm trying to get my friends. Like this book, I've got extra copies. And when I have friends, if they're open to things, this is what I want to get into their hands to have them wrestle and think about those things. And I think like someone for like yourself, I think there's the, there's folks like David Bentley Hart that like for you or Jedediah and others that um, that, that move over into that plane to where all of a sudden he gets into this realm that if you need to have the metaphysical, the philosophical, the classic things like all if those are questions you need to have answered. He can he can take you there and you realize, oh, I'm not stupid. Being open to the idea of apocatastasis, right? Well, yeah, that, that is true. But I would also say of, of George MacDonald, I would I'm trying to quote C.S. Lewis as closely as I can. Like he's well, first I'll paraphrase MacDonald is flying higher than than anyone, including David Bentley Hart, in my in my opinion. And that 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 C.S. Lewis said, I know of no one closer or so, I, I can think of hardly any other author who is closer or so, and so continually close to the spirit of Christ as, as George MacDonald. And I, and I think, yes, absolutely. And the other thing that I think that he does just for me, I, now you can stop and contemplate, like if you to slow down and really contemplate about the things he's talking about, there's depth, you know, there's a, inexhaustible cost of thought they're epic, absolutely eternal depth but i find that it's very I, I find that he's very accessible and i think that's oh, yeah. the true gift of someone who is able to stay that close and be that close to god and then be able to communicate it very clearly so so the so more people can grasp it more simply i think that's a true gift we were talking about the kind of spiritual sight that is needed to rightly divide the word you know the words of scripture and i think that george mcdonald really is probably the best model that i can think of you know you know outside well you know it's like the bible it's like the bible needs to be interpreted and they say let scripture interpret scripture but in practice that's very difficult to do um uh, but but um if we're talking about you know outside of scripture i i think that that uh, mcdonald is is like the best um model of, of that that spiritual sight that is that is needed um, uh, to 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 see the scripture and also to see reality, you know, just you know everything um, as it is. Because there's something that I'm I'm going to begin to start saying with probably annoying frequency. I heard it from my friend Luke, and I can't even remember what he said after it. It was a corollary, and it was this whole involved thing actually. But I just heard the first sentence where he said, "Unless you love, you do not see." And so this site is fundamentally, it's the site where it, you can see as God sees, like just the the value, you know, of every, of every one of his, his of his children and creatures who are in his image. Um, you know, if you and if you are not seeing from that point of view, you know, you you you're, you're just going to be stumbling around and bumping into right. stuff. Uh, and I was thinking about what is the love of what does the love of Christ really look like? Yeah. As 
you're being nailed to the cross by that very person. You see them with tenderness and love and forgiveness. Father, forgive them. I mean, that's, and that's, that's that's hard. Yeah, that's hard. Like, but when you can get to that level of, or hopefully be transformed, I mean, until you're at that level, which is theosis, which is further up, further in, which is I'm so far from it. Um, but when you can get to to that level of of a type of, of forgiveness and mercy towards all, now you're approaching something that looks like the love of Christ, right? Yeah. Yeah. The scary thing, of course, is that Jesus says you will drink from the cup that I will drink from. You will do greater things than I. Peter, when you turn, strengthen the brethren. You're going to stretch out your, now you're young, you move where you want to, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your, your hand, your arm for others to dress you and take you where you do not want to go. And he's kind of referring to when Peter stumbled and lost faith when he was, when, when Christ was with, was with him on, on the earth. But then the, the kind of the conclusion to Peter's life that I don't think we read in the Bible um, is, is him asking to be crucified upside down. Uh, so that he won't be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. So you think about, you think about the truth of Jesus' words. You know that that actually, you know, you'll do greater things than I. Um, that you will follow me and become like me on this path, uh, which is you know terrible on one level because it is it is it is dying. Um, but you on another level, it's it's because you wanted to talk about how the how the how the how the cross. It's like the creation event. And Jesus, yeah. of course, says to tell us day. He says, uh, it is finished. And you know, Sherry says with Jonathan Bear that that uh that what he's referring to is is a, is essentially Genesis. He's referring to creation itself being finished on the cross. And so, you know, the universalist way to look at that is that God is continually, you know, there isn't actually one punctiliar moment of creation that that um you know, every moment is the moment of creation. Um, God is always destroying and making uh, his creation anew. Um, and that's just fundamentally God's creative process. It's not just, you know, a one-off event that that has um, ever unfolding, uh, you know, consequences. It's something which is, which is, which is always, which is always happening at every moment. In that sense, you can view the cross as like you know the center of history and as and as the creation event in an even more fundamental sense than you know the the creation described in Genesis. Right. Well, and then you know, and then he speaks everything everything into creation, but then he, but then it gets to us and let us make a very different thing, like let us make in our image. And you know, John Bear ties that so beautifully. There is actually just came out on a video I shared with. And Jerry says there's a little book, but, you know, he talks about that ultimately that it was in that when Jesus says it's in a finish, that's when he's the first truly human being and has then rectified and become let out. So I'm going to read this little bit. This comes. So I think we'll transition into this and there'll probably be time to wrap it up. And who knows, this might be a mini series we've done here today, Cal. I don't I, I don't think people can hang it. Can they hang in this long? My podcast, we actually do only, we, we actually do have four hour podcasts on my podcast because I, I just, I just don't care. 
I mean, who would be? Good Lord, who who would who would uh, want to listen to us for this long? But hey, if you're still hanging in, or that's a very good argument, I have one which I cannot actually answer. <laughs> so I'm going to pretend I didn't hear it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, because actually, I think this is. I, but I think this. So I think this is important, and I think it, I think it gets back to um, an interesting contemplation thing. But as you open your eyes to new ideas and things, and time, space, and everything else, and what really was happening, and what the cross represents versus some sort of wrath on humanity because we did this sin here, and in a linear fashion, he had to come in and save it, and God had to pour wrath on Jesus to. You know, as as the whole as the totality of all of that versus it being, you know, all these things. And so there's this uh, book that Jess P and I have been reading called The Beauty of Ethics. And it's a magnificent book. It's uh it's massively big, by the way. But he has this very interesting thing where he's talking about um the importance of seeing things as Christ crucified, right? And, um, and, 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 you know, Paul was big, like when he was preaching, I did preach to nothing but Christ crucified. Like that's, that's the gospel. And when you see, there are lots of other books that were around, like when they have a lost gospel of Thomas, they, they weren't lost. They, they knew what those books were, like as the church was putting together, but there was a central element, even to the differences and the different audiences and authors of the gospels, the focus is on Christ crucified. Like, so that's, that's the victory. You know, that's the Christ victory, Christus victor. That's the truth that Jesus had to open the minds of his disciples on the road to Emmaus in order to see, you know, as Brad Jurczak is fond of pointing out. But that, that's, yeah, yeah. So I, I was thinking about this independently, and then Jess shared this, and then I came into this part where I was reading it, because I was starting to think the lamb slain below the, before the world, right? In through him, through him, all things are made. It is finished. And taking myself out of a linear time thinking thought, right, is I had this sense of the cross being a big bang moment, the Genesis moment. And so I'll read you this out of Beauty of Ethics, and I'd love to kind of do this thought experiment with you because you think about these things. You, you love to think about freaky things and talk about them in cool ways. So um, the Garden of Eden. There is something else, though, that I believe. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, Eve also saw Christ in his self-emptying love. There was a section of the garden that was forbidden to them. They were told that it contained a forbidden fruit. And there, when they transgressed its boundaries, they beheld Christ hanging upon the cross. They were accustomed to conversing with Christ daily. But in that forbidden place, they saw Christ in a different state. This shock was what broke their faith and confidence and made them lose grace, the grace that had clothed them with uncreated light. And that is how they discovered themselves to be naked, because they were no longer dressed in this light. Before they entered the secret realm of the garden, they knew Christ. I mean, they conversed directly with their creator and the master of creation, but they did not know Christ crucified. They were not yet meant to take that step from the resurrection the understanding of the Son as all victorious and divine, to the cross, his self-emptying love, his vulnerability, his granting to them of their own freedom vis-a-vis -vis his sovereignty. They lost their chastity by being scandalized by Christ's vulnerability, by turning their focus away from the crucified Christ and looking instead to this world and to pleasure, to wisdom, to power, to themselves, and even to dark powers for the source of their existence. 
Adam and Eve turned, that is, to anything which seemed in their limited understanding to possess an unbroken strength, unlike their creator whom they now saw crucified. After all, how could they accept that the source of their life was a creator who himself hung dead upon a tree? <clears throat> they were not yet ready for this vision because they were still like children. In fact, after they were exiled, exiled from the garden, they themselves probably forgot what they had seen or could talk only about it in metaphors. The serpent deceived them with a partial truth. He told them that in trespassing the forbidden section of the garden, they would become like God. However, he did not tell them that to become like God, they would have to die with God. Such a total sacrifice would have been too much for them in their childlike state. So we can see how mocking and cruel his words were. The enemy was jealous and insanely malicious, knowing that the dying son was more lofty than his own angelic resplendence in power. So in that moment, so as we voiced, I voiced, I'd always thought about this in a linear fashion, you know, but yet you had the land slain by the world. What was that? Like, okay, that's got to be Christ. And then, you know, in John, it says in the beginning was the logos is with God. Actually, it means face to face. Right. So that's and I, by the way, that's Trinitarian, that's person. So we understand that everything was made through by him for him. Nothing was made without him. So anything in existence comes out of Christ. And so I've had this sense that like. In my mind, I'm like, wait a minute. Is the cross the Genesis moment, the Big Bang moment? And in that moment, is that the lightning when Satan fell? And you see where I'm going with all this? And then things rush out from there to to on our line, like to the to the future, to the past, like you dropping, throwing a rock into a water and everything emanates out. Was that the moment? Like, what do you think about that? I think that if we are invited um, by the spirit of God to see Christ and Christ crucified in, in all of scripture, then that is an extremely uh, it, illuminating sort of exercise in 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 imaginative theology that you just read um and um i think you know I, I certainly never considered it like that before i think i think what you said is 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 um is is really beautiful i'm i i'm you know i'm definitely gonna to the extent that i recall it maybe i'll have to find that passage again online or you know you can share it with me but but i'm, I'm gonna try to you know meditate on that and kind of you know, see see the implications of that insofar as you know to the extent that I can, which is like, uh, you know, it's 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 too it's too eternal and too um, uh, cosmic, you know, to to fully you know grasp. But I think that that is because that that has everything there. It it has it has um it's like a creation and the depth of God's self sacrificial love, you know, and the pattern that that we are to you know, grow into as as sons of of, of that God. Um, and and it's just but I mean still I, I'm not doing it justice. Um uh you know that that's 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 a really just a, a staggering passage. Cause I had this image and if I was cool what I what I what I envisioned by the way intuitively 
as I've been reading all these verses for all these years, and I've been trying to understand the lamb slain before the world, so I understand there's eternal stuff, and then there's stuff in time, and it's it's also how you try and grasp something that, to me, is truer than true, which is a trinity. Um, so, for example, this is dumb guy. So I'm a dumb guy, right? So I'm a dumb guy, but I see things in a simple sense. And so yeah, that's that's a, that's an arguable point. Well, you're gonna object. I, I, I'm not. I'm not as smart. The judge as other sustained guys. my objection. <laughs> but when I thought about, <laughs> to me, you, I, I see the Trinity absolutely throughout s- Scripture, and to me that. That love is a choice and love is freedom. And before there was any of these created things, that love exists in relationship, right? And so before time, before creation, there was the Father, Son, and Spirit. There was never a time that he wasn't the Father, by the way. It just, it, it seems to be, that's that's very exegetical. I'm sorry, it is. You can stand on your head to make claims against it, but it's, it's obvious. And so to me, there was this sense that love is free. Love is not coerced. Therefore, we didn't lose free will, you know, so that that knocks out a bunch of, you know, original sin theories and everything else, because love is in the freedom. It is in the choice and loved for love to have existed eternally before, you know, outside of time, that it was the loving relationship between the father and the son and the spirit. Now, that's a mystery. But to me, it just makes just it's just simple. Like, I, I, I think, think about that, things simply like that. I think that a loving relationship between persons in a way I can't fully describe or, or, or justify, um, perhaps, but at this time. But I think that a loving relationship between persons is the most fundamental medium or context in which we understand anything. And everything is everything else is to be explained in terms of lo- a loving relationship. And, and the, the loving relationships are not to be explained in terms of or reduced to anything else or anything putatively more fundamental. And so um, you can get into, yeah, and so you can get into deeper thoughts like essence, energy, like there's lots of things and ontologically. The Trinity is the deepest thing. It is, but it, but, but the also relationality it, it of God, the inner relationality See, it, of God's love. Yeah. It can scale. You can be, um, I have an autistic daughter, like she gets, like, by the way, she gets Jesus better than any, I think deeper and better than I can, I, to be brutally honest. And I have, of all my kids, I worry about her least in the kingdom of God. She's got a with what she's dealing with in her autism, she's got a straight shot to whatever the the hierarchy that's in heaven. And so um, I don't do that. But but here's what I want to come back to. So like, and I'm an intuitor and things just make sense. And these things that I grappled with, like when I had this vision, then read, then, then, then I hear Jess P talking about it. Then I read that. So I've, there's a little bit of things coming together. Like I think something, then this thing comes up, you know what I mean? It's one of those weird coincidences are starting to come. But but to me, like that just starts to make total sense. Like in a simple way, I'm like, oh, if that's the Genesis moment, that's how he can be the lamb, right? Created before the world. That's how things can be created in through for him in terms of out time, space time. We, we get stuck in this linear sense of time. And, and that becomes that Genesis moment to where everything then starts to be created and we're experiencing thing in this very linear past, present, future, yet it all exists at the same time. You see where I'm going? Like I, I'm not smart enough to understand these things, but smarter people than me think about these things. But that, that I'm just saying on a very simple level, that seems to make entire sense to me. And it starts putting together a bunch of scriptures that I've 
I think you actually just kind of articulated everything just now. Uh, uh, like at least at this moment, like like letting all your words, you know, fall uh, on, on me. Uh, it, it kind of it kind of sounds like yeah. I think Lance just said everything. <laughs> um, but that's why I say I get to this simple level, and and, and I, I have to end. To me, I, the hard things I try and think about, like I have to get to a level where I can, I, I t use a lot of words and I'm all over the place. And I, I kind of like, I, I understand Kanye, if that makes sense. <laughs> I, like when Luke talks, I get Luke, because although he's all over the place, I'm an intuitor and I'm jumping with it. But uh, for me, I need to try and get to a level to where, and it takes me some time to where I can understand something, but explain it in words that I can talk to any of my friends and it has some resonance, if that makes sense. I think, I think you succeeded in that. Um, uh, I am, I'm kind of reaching the point in the day where I have like always have this slump. So I can't really like express myself as well, but I think that, but I think that I understood, you know, and so for, and to the degree that anyone can understand that, that mystery that you were laying out, but I, I feel like I understood it. Um, yeah. And that it's it's also in some sense like do you want to call it the mystery? It's it's also it's also the 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 end point, the condition in which God is all in all, and that that is like um. You know that is the apocatastasis. The the apocatastasis is a, is a holy thing because or, you know, like if you ask me, what what, you know, God is the consciousness in whom we live and move and have our being. We're contents of that consciousness, but we're also subjects of consciousness in our own right. And the thing about consciousness is that on it's kind of non-dual. So, like on one level, it regards its its contents. On another level, it is its contents. There is a level of reality on which God is identified with His creation, and like the like the highest level of that reality is is when God is all in all. Yeah. Um, and 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 so like that's it's it's you know there's you know, there's the be there's the beginning, there's protology, and then there's the 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 end of of creation. That is the sense of, not that it ever ends, but the sense of the purpose that you know for which it was spoken into being. And there is a level at which they you know everything everything converges and is is conjoined. It is at that central that central mystery of of, of the cross. Like the, the you were you were laying it out, I, and I I certainly couldn't do a better job, even if I. Uh, we're, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, at 100%. Um, well, I, and I think, and I think this is a good place to wrap it up, but I think what would be cool is I would love to, and I've just been contemplating this, and I know it's imaginative and it's speculative, and I'm not saying, any, I'm not trying to put a dogma or a certainty around it. However, as I've been reading saints and, and certain patristics, like, that 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 can live within a lot of things I've actually read, <laughs> deeper, broader, more mystical things. Like I, I I'm starting to spot it, but I think it'd be cool for us to almost contemplate and talk about that with like Sherry and Jess and yourself. Yeah. Like I think I think that's a and, and then the, the other thing that I've realized is for me is like that has a dramatic impl implication for a lot of dogmas and doctrines and theologies that certain people think about today. Like it's a, it's pretty, it's a pretty big thing. Um, and so I think it's a, I think it's a cool thought experience. And I know, I know you're getting tired here and we'll, we'll, and by the way, 300 miles per hour of Lance and Zeal. How was that? Well, I, I should say, 
you know, like I'm, I'm, if I were at work, I, I would be fine to keep working. But, but what we're talking about is not easy to talk about. Right. There's something, there's some stuff that I can only really like even cognitively access, like just during a very limited, you know, portion of the day. Um, or sometimes like in the middle of the night, unhelpfully, it's like suddenly it's all making perfect sense, but I actually need to be sleeping. Um, so, so no, it's not that it's not even that we couldn't keep talking, but, but I'm, uh, but, uh, you know, there is, uh, th there is just like the depth of the subject matter, um, which is, um, you know, pre prohibitively abstract, um, when you're not, when you're, when you're just kind of not all there, um, no, as, absolutely. As, yeah. I think it's a great comment. We'll, we're going to set. So I think I would love to be. I'd love to think about that conversation. And I think you're right because I've actually been thinking about that for over a month now, just contemplating and kicking it around. And I've taken it a spin through the scriptures and other sorts of stuff. You no, know, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It's it's um uh, it's because that's even before it's before Eden. You know. Um, and uh, that I don't know what you want to call this little uh, conversation or episode, um, but maybe it should be something referring to that. I don't know. Um, well, I, I think we'll first I, I don't know. I think ultimately it was just uh, some um, it, it, we, some ramblings that hopefully were interesting and we touched on some things. But uh, um, I appreciate because I this is hey, you got me to do my first video. I have turned down all requests up to this point. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, right. I had always, because uh, I'm in this great period of transformation, and okay. I don't think we're talking about- I'm just connecting some dots right now. Yeah, edit edit whatever ever, whatever needs to be edited. Um, I think I might have said some things, which if I had- No, really... no, wait, wait, I, this is all, don't, don't stop. We can, you can do this. I'm not editing it. Um, uh, I'm just saying you, as we wrap this up, um, because of who you are and how much I respect you and you asked me, I just felt like, I guess it's my time to say yes to a video. So you coaxed Good. me onto the internet, Cal. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah, okay. I, I see where you're coming from. We can talk more about this. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out, but I'm, I'm super right. honored and I'm glad that I got, I got to have you on because it was something that I knew, I knew I wanted to have you on. Um, life was happening at 300 miles per hour uh and you know and, and uh you know things were happening but i knew i needed to have you on at some point so you're good hey well good conversation partner we'll do this again thanks cal well, thank you so much yeah we will thank you